Well, good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, depending on where you are in the world and what time it is when you're tuning in. This is Perrin Desports, and I'm your host for the Group Practice Accelerator podcast from Polaris Healthcare Partners. If you're an entrepreneurial dentist or other healthcare provider, and you're interested in building a successful group practice, you found your primary resource for some of the industry's best business education. My partner, DeWalker Sinha, and I have decades of experience helping people just like you launch, scale, and ultimately exit successful group practices. In short, we create clarity, confidence, and results. Well, welcome everyone to season two, episode nine of the Group Practice Accelerator podcast, an episode we're gonna call Banking Solutions. We're gonna talk about lower middle market and middle market lending. We'll talk about bank lenders versus non-bank lenders. We'll compare and contrast all the uses of debt funds today. And this is something that should put a bow on the last two months worth of discussions around the subject of borrowing money. We're gonna give you a lot of high level information and a lot of ways to think strategically about using bank funds to grow. That's a long-winded way of saying it's surely to be a note-taking episode. So get your pad and pen ready for another wonderful cup of that Mila coffee. The Group Practice Accelerator podcast is on the air. Once again, thanks everybody for joining us on the Group Practice Accelerator podcast. I failed to note in the introduction But of course, when it comes to the world of banking, I'm going to be joined by my partner, DeWalker Sinha, on today's show. DeWalker, do you want to say hello to everybody? Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining us today. So this is all about DeWalker. This is his wheelhouse. This is what he did for uh, the better part of 10 to 15 years in a prior, uh, prior work career. And it really does come down to the best way to use debt funds to grow your group practice. We've given you all a lot of concepts over the last probably six to eight episodes or more. Uh, And today is going to put a bow on a lot of that and bring them all together. So we're going to focus on lower middle market and middle market lending amongst many other topics. But I think for today's discussion, let's start it with some of the trends we're seeing at an enterprise level when we start talking about capital use, capital sourcing, capital funding, and things like that. Do you want to take it from the top here, DeWalker, and talk about trends that, that are happening in our industry right now? Uh, yeah. So I think, um, you know, two, 2021 was a you know, all-around really successful year for M&A. <clears throat> and, you know, people that are going to transact last year, um, you know, uh, you know, went through that process due to, you know, potential tax changes that were, were not going to happen last year. Um, then the, to some level they may happen this year, you know, I guess, uh, uh throughout the year, you know, we'll kind of see that, but w- one of the bigger trends we're seeing in Q1 is a lot of groups, um, uh, are, you know, some are, tr- some are going to the, you know, obviously the, uh, sell side process with us to transact and have an equity partner. We can talk about using equity uh, capital versus uh, debt capital. But another trend we've been seeing for the last probably 60, 90 days uh, is a lot of groups that are anywhere from 500,000 to about $2 million in EBITDA consolidating with other peers in the market. And and what I mean by that is, you know, somebody's about a $2 million EBITDA in the space, um, they're friends with a local competitor, 
might be a complementary business, meaning pedo complementing ortho, ortho complementing oral surgery, um, you know, periodontics, general dentistry, and, and they're merging their businesses into the market uh, together. And, and when that's happening, you know, they're, they're obviously need to, somebody needs to write a check if there's a uh, equalization of, of equity position, or it might be an indifferent uh, capital stru- uh, equity structure based on how they contribute equity into the business. At any cost, they have to recapitalize that business. And if they're going to merge their businesses together, they have to redo their capital structure. Um, or the intent might be to redo their capital structure because two parties are coming together and saying, hey, let's not bring in an equity partner today. Let's kind of take our combined businesses over the next two to four years and, and put it on steroids, right? Just you know, grow it at an exponential rate. Um, and let's give it some rocket fuel in the, in the aspect of human capital and financial capital. And human capital is the reason they did the merger and now they're going towards the financial capital. So as we see a lot of mergers in this space coming in 2022, um, you know, middle market lending is becoming more prevalent for us. Uh, we're actually moving more upstream into that transaction space going into 2022. Uh, and, and I think we've talked about in our previous podcast, the entry point for those are really going to be around 20 to 25 million. And on the average, they go up to about 100, 150 million. But you can see middle market lending go all the way up to about $250 million. And then above that can be uh, a more institutional debt um, uh, that would be available out there. So we're starting to, starting to see a lot of that trends going into Q1 2022. Um, M&A advisory or sell side advisory is still very attractive. Uh, we're seeing a, you know, a lot of activity in that side of the business. But I think we're also seeing because of, of our, our reach with our audience, starting to see people that are talking to their peers in the market and say, okay, how can we work together uh, join hands and and split roles and responsibilities, and then and and and, uh, and diversify and grow grow the the local demographic and before we have an exit. Yeah, I think that's a good point to pick up on because uh, your last word there, exit, um, kind of leads me into a thought on on the next uh, subject or topic, and and that is um, equity partners for growth versus uh, debt capital for growth, and and I think. You know, let's face it, everybody in our audience and everybody in this industry is seduced by large dollars and EBITDA multiples and transactions and um, the uh, the influx of private equity groups um, into into our world. and it's um it's seductive to kind of think about for lack of a better term. Um, but I think the challenge is that still far too many people view um, a, a and an exit to a private equity group, if if that's the right way of phrasing it, or transaction with a private equity group, um, to be crossing the finish line. And as you and I know, that's really only about halftime of the way the game is played. Um, so I don't know that that's the uh, the victory lap that everybody is intending it to be. And sometimes there is a compelling reason to uh, find the right equity partner as, as a growth catalyst for the business to, to pass through the inflection point and take on the next stage of growth. But that can also be a scenario where people get kind of painted into that box and they feel like that there's no further debt capital available to them for growth. And from our lens, that's not the case at all. I and mean, people have heard us say that, you know, if you find the right lower middle market to middle market lender at some of the volume levels that you just discussed, you, I mean, you can 
you can build a, an unbelievably large business in terms of revenue, EBITDA, and valuation and do it all with debt funds. And, and Pacific Dental is still using bank funds to grow or, or debt funds to grow. They are not private equity backed. So they're kind of the poster child of, of how to grow something to an unbelievably large enterprise level um, and, and still not bring on a, a private equity type partner. Um, so do you want to maybe talk through the differences or the way to think through equity partners versus debt capital for growth here? Yeah, so I think uh, you know we you know we tend to attract even in our sell side advisory. Uh, most of our clients tend to be still in the growth phase, or you know I think the the, the statements we hear is you know I'd, I'd like to bring on a capital partner or equity partner, take some chips off the table, but I want to I want to still realize my vision or or complete my vision, and I think that's um, you know reflection of in some of this you know, how we're positioned in the market, which is a consulting and transactional services firm versus just uh, straight transactional services. So and I think a po- that's a positive, you know, in the fact that of the type of, you know, partner we bring to the space. And the short answer is, you know, if you're, if you're an equity partner can be a great catalyst for growth. I mean, they're going to bring you not just in the form of capital, um, you know, into the business to, you know, allow you to aggregate, do more de novos, you know, create a sub DSO model or true DSO uh, hold co-equity. Sure, you may dilute down based on the equity position or equity they're putting into the transaction. They might obviously still offer you the opportunity to co-invest in those transactions to retain your equity position. But the goal would be, you know, if you're, if you're in a million to $2 million in EBITDA, you know, you have a, you know, take some chips off the table, you bring in an equity partner, that over a certain amount of period that, you know, the the valuation of that business is hopefully worth two to three X, right? And those are performers we work through with. So I think bringing an equity partner is, can be, you know, the right equity partner is going to be very impactful in the fact that, you know, you bring on, um, you know, intellectual property, human resources capital, you know, they might have better resources for recruiting retention. Uh, they might have more manpower available to make sure in case uh, there's any labor concerns in the market that they can help you with. Uh, and beyond that, they might be uh, 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 really you know, positioned well to allow you on the business development front to allow you to grow in that local geography. So I think that's a really positive thing from an equity partner's position. You know, some people don't want to take some chips off the table. So I think, you know, those are positive things in the equity side. Yeah, so it, it kind of transitions us now into, um, you know, the, if the equity partner is not the right solution, and if you want to continue building to your vision and, you know, keeping control of the organization and and using uh, bank funds to grow or debt funds to grow, then then what's the the right solution? So one of the one of the things that sort of puts people in a box, I guess, um, is this whole asset lending versus or an asset lend asset based lender versus a cash flow based lender and you know why it matters in, in growing a group practice, what's the difference in it and how do we how do we kind of start to to unravel the the retail versus lower middle market versus middle market sort of market segments there. So why don't we why don't we take a quick uh, foray into this asset based lending versus cash flow based lending for our audience? Yeah, so I think in a previous podcast we went into a little bit. So asset based lending is really going to be something uh, where somebody looks at the 
you know, book of value of the business or assets in the business, balance sheet lending, uh, they're doing real estate lending, you know, any kind of true hard assets in the business, or they might put a discounted value to the business and say, okay, that is what we can lend on. You know, cash flow lending is where you want to be um, in our space, which is essentially looks at the, you know, uh, from our previous podcast, free cash flow of the business, or really more EBITDA of the business. Uh, they do solve for debt service coverage ratio, which is going to go towards more of a free cash flow position. Um, and it's going to take into account a distribution and all those things into their, uh, their lending model. But you really want to have a true cash flow lender that can you know, st- start communicating the forms of debt to EBITDA, free cash flow, leverage ratio. When you hear those catch words, uh, or when we talk to these banks and we hear those catch words, um, you know, that's when we know we have the right person um, that's going to understand you know, the growth strategy of our clients and is and potentially going to be the right fit for our client. Yeah. So that, with that in mind, let's take a a, a deeper step or a further step around um, uh, comparing and contrasting uh, middle market, lower middle market, and I mean, I guess to a lesser extent, retail type banks. But you know, the covenants and ratios, volume, kind of. How how do we help people segment the market? This might be a little bit clunky on a podcast, but I think there are ways that people want to see their growth um, moving through different boxes from a uh, a lender context. You want to take a stab at that? Yeah. So I, I think uh, when you. St- going to like traditional lending or commercial banking, I kind of go to that. You know, majority of those institutions are focused. Yeah, yeah they're going to look at debt service coverage ratio, uh, but they're going to be focused more on percentage of revenue for lending purposes. Um, they might be looking at a two times EBITDA to three times EBITDA leverage ratio. Uh, but majority of it, they're going to kind of communicate you in the terms of percentage of revenue when they're lending. And again, kind of going back towards our previous podcast, that's okay. Um, you know, when you're at one to two, maybe one to three locations, when you start to get past two to three locations and you want to enter the lower middle market space, you know, you want to start talking more about funded debt to EBITDA or leverage ratio and really start to focus more because you're still going to be personally guaranteeing in the lower middle market space, you know, on, um, on, on de- you know, debt service coverage ratio. And, you know, where does that end up being? And that's going to be, Again, anywhere from one two five to one five zero, depending on how the business is looking at. Uh, but I think those that language starts to help you, you know, you know, provide some level of okay, am I even commercial banking, lower middle market? And then when you start to go into middle market, you know, I mean, the covenants there more become about leverage ratio, forward thinking, performers. You start to hear these catchwords, uh, and you know, a lot of the bankers we talk to in the middle market space. You know the the language or the conversations and the phone calls we're having um, are very similar to equity platforms. I mean, these guys get growth strategy. They get you know, what a client may be trying to achieve. They can be forward thinking. They can start to look at a little bit of consideration on a performer basis. And and you see that in the middle market space from a bank's position, but you also have a lot of non-bank lenders in the space. And when we start, we're starting to see a lot more. Uh, true middle market, you know, family offices, you know, uh, larger merger deals, where you know, yes, we may go to a banking, a bank lender, depending on the risk model that, on the growth strategy of our client. But we're starting to see a lot of bank lenders or non-bank lenders becoming very uh, 
uh, you know, uh, prevalent in our space. When you start looking at the big um, private equity-backed DSOs, uh, some of them, if not most of them from our research, are using non-bank lenders. Um, and our Rolodex you know, of access to capital and uh, some of those institutions are the same. And the other institutions that we have in our non-bank lender uh, Rolodex are institutions that are similar size that may not have a significant investment pool uh, of deployed capital into the dental space or overall healthcare space, but these might be asset firms that have, you know, billion to ten billion dollars or twenty billion dollars in uh, direct lending capital and under, under assets and management. So, um, you know, that's where you want to do with the non-bank, uh, non-lenders, uh, non-bank lender space. Yeah. So when we talk about <clears throat> non-bank lenders, <clears throat> you know, I think our audience is is still more traditional emerging groups, right? I mean, they think about debt funds and borrowing just from a traditional banking relationship because that's what's relatable. When we talk about non-bank lenders, um, you know, why would someone uh, want to work with a non-bank lender? Like what what's what's the difference in a traditional bank lender versus non-bank in terms of the motivation to to look outside of a traditional banking relationship, you think? Yes, yeah, so I think uh, um, in our uh, interview process, you know, when we onboard a client for a middle market or any kind of a capital solution, you know, you know, we I think it works the same with our consulting process, which is you know start with the end in mind, right? So, you know, what is your client trying to build in five years or ten years? And through that growth strategy, you know, we're going to recommend a client a type of institution. And if their growth strategy is somewhat conservative in the fact that, you know, they're a you know, $15 million business and they're going to do one or two locations per year, uh, depending on the gro- you know, performance of EBITDA, um, a bank lender might be fine as far as growth strategy, all the way from lower middle market to middle market. When you start dealing with, uh, you know, companies that, you know, we're dealing with, which is anywhere from, 7 million to 20 million in EBITDA, you know, they're not doing one or two locations a year. Um, these guys are going to be doing four to 10 locations a year. These are doctor-owned uh, groups, doctor-founded groups that don't want to consolidate or have a capital event through an equity partner yet. You know, they're trying to you know, take that you know, 7 to $20 million in EBITDA to 40 to $50 million in EBITDA uh, and then, then have a capital event. So when you start looking at more of an aggressive growth model, a non-bank lender, the, the pros are going to be, let's go through the, actually, let's go through the, the cons. And the cons would be um, more pricing related, you know, just that we would think from a consumer's end, uh, which is, you know, pricing is going to improve um, by 200%. So if you're, you know, you're pricing on a lending institution's 4% to 5% in the lower middle market or commercial banking space, you know, you're going to be anywhere from, Eight to twelve percent in the non-bank lender space, uh, so that's a significant premium, right? To be able to go from a four to you know five percent, you know, a cost of capital to eight to twelve percent. So if you're going to take on that level of cost of capital, um, you, you have to you know uh, have a growth strategy that overcomes the increased cost of capital. And there are, and our clients that are going to that structure. Um, have a very aggressive growth plan. They want to be able to compete with the equity partners or equity-backed DSOs in the space and be able to close at that rate or faster 
and be able to go to that uh, affiliating doctor in that market and say, sure, you can have a transaction with a a, a 500 location or a thousand location DSO and an equities side. But we, you know, I'm, you know, a doctor owned group. I have 30 locations, 50 locations, and, you know, we can close at the same uh, pace. You know, you're going to be a doctor partner with us. Yes, we'll have a capital event one day. You can be in the initial um, uh, capital event with us. You're going to have similar class structure of equity, and that could be, you know, uh, uh, looked at on a one by one basis. And I think you know these guys want to be able to aggregate the market themselves, uh, be the aggregator, accept and and go to their their uh, uh, their uh, markets of interest, and go to those doctors and not have them go to an equity partner. So I think that allows them the competitive edge. So that the pricing is obviously a big deterrent. Once you can psychologically get over the pricing issue, to me everything is a positive. Uh, you know you have a lending partner that understands your growth strategy. Uh, I mean, there's in some aspects structured very much like an equity firm where they have to deploy capital. They have to provide a yield to their portfolio to their investors. So, you know, you know, some of the deals we're looking at, you know, and we've talked to these non-bank lenders, they won't even uh, engage in a transaction where they cannot deploy an initial capital position of $50 million, right? I mean, that's their minimal capital deployment. And they want to make sure that an ongoing relationship is going to deploy five to ten million dollars in capital, and their life cycle in that relationship might be five years or seven years. Meaning, they'll enter into a relationship at fifty million dollars in capital position. They'll provide another twenty to thirty million dollars in capital based on current performance. Not to say that's what they're going to cap out, but so we might be securing a hundred million dollar facility for a client with a fifty million dollar recap. And you know, within five years, that client is going to be at a hundred million dollars in deployed capital with the institution. Uh, they might still have some more runway with them, but that $100 million in deployed capital, they're probably going to be around you know, 20 to 25, maybe $30 million in EBITDA. Um, and, and they're positioned well to at that point to have a, a financial investor, uh, private equity group come into that transaction directly, or uh, they may be a great add-on acquisition for a strategic DSO that's looking to go into that geography um, and just you know, needed a good platform investment to go into. Um, and, and you see those kind of transactions happen with the private equity back DSOs in the market today. Yeah, excellent information. I may have missed this, but just for our audience, um, did you say on a, a non-bank lender um, what the, the leverage ratios were, were looking like compared to like a traditional middle market um, type scenario? Uh, yeah, so the traditional leverage risk is going to be anywhere from three to four x, you know, to maybe four to five x. Uh, that being said, the difference from a non-bank lender's viewpoint is they're going to say, "Can okay, I recap what's our leverage ratio?" Okay, and then if we're going to provide you a twenty to fifty million dollar facility for growth, what's going to be our leverage ratio going forward? What are we anticipating? So if, if we're taking that client from fifty million dollars in, in a debt recap to hundred million dollars. The performer has to reflect that that EBITDA position at $100 million exposure is going to be around $25 million, right? The, 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 the very attractive thing in a non-bank lender's viewpoint is they're able to look at performance. Obviously, they're going to want to make sure those performances are there, but they're willing to kind of have that forward commitment a little bit more aggressively versus a non-bank lender or from a bank lender positions. They may not have the same forward viewpoint, and they're always going to want to check it on a historical basis and really do TTM more than say, okay, 
we're, we're going to test TTM, which is trailing 12 months. Uh, but we also want to look on a forward-looking basis and see how we can better position our client to grow in the market and aggregate. Yeah, very, very helpful. And and I think, you know, when you were talking about um, uh, rates for non-bank lenders and even, even rates for middle market, lower middle market being a, a point or two higher than than retail, you know, our our audience comes into the world of group practices um, with the mindset of uh, searching for the lowest rate possible because that's that's how they started out. That's how everybody starts out buying their first or building their first, maybe the first couple or something. So we're kind of preconditioned to say it's all ten year term. Just give me the the lowest cost of funds. Um, and and I think this is a discussion that people really really need to recalibrate their expectations and their understanding. You know, we're talking about inflation and uh, the Fed hiking rates a couple of times this year and everything like that. But debt funds are are still relatively dirt cheap. Um, they're certainly going up in cost, but they're if you understand the business you're building and the value of the equity that you have on on balance sheet with the the EBITDA, the business, and whatever a market based uh, valuation comp would be, then you start to understand the fact that your equity is worth a lot of money. And if you can use the right debt vehicle as a catalyst for growth and generate multifold returns in terms of equity on balance sheet, then you can make a really good case that you would be crazy to transact the business prematurely. And I think that's what some people kind of miss the forest through the trees on. They don't really understand truly how valuable their business is and the value of the secret sauce and the execution and everything else they bring to the table in terms of building a bigger business that that progressively yields a turn or two more in terms of valuation and the the relatively still inexpensive cost of the debt funds to do it. So this is a a really um uh, an interesting conversation we're getting into now that that borders on that enterprise mindset, if you will, and I think it's critically important if our uh, if our audience is going to, you know, make that leap from five to ten, ten to twenty, twenty to fifty locations, um, or or whatever the commensurate level of revenue and EBITDA is, that we really do start to get into the value of equity and using debt funds appropriately to do that. So. Walker, I really appreciate you uh, joining me. Um, you know, over the course of really the last six to eight weeks or so, I think we've unpacked a lot as it relates to uh, banking using debt funds as a catalyst for growth, and and hopefully um, we've impressed upon our audience the need to to really gain a fundamental understanding around this lending commitment um, and the borrowing relationship, if you will, with the right institution to, to fund and execute the overall growth strategy of the, uh, of the business. It's, it's really been fun, uh, to, to dive in with you and I appreciate you. And I know our audience appreciates you joining us. Yeah. Thanks for having me. You bet. There'll be more good stuff to come. And obviously we, um, hit on a lot of heady topics today and over the last couple of weeks. So if y'all do have questions uh, or comments or um, looking for guidance or wanting to dig a little bit deeper in in terms of your banking relationship and really how you're going to be using debt funds to grow, I encourage you to reach out to me and or to Walker directly. Uh, you can always drop us an email. I can be uh, reached at Perrin 
at polarishealthcarepartners.com. And DeWalker is DeWalker at polarishealthcarepartners.com. Stick around. We'll be right back with some additional thoughts and to wrap up the show. Well, that was a ton of fun. DeWalker is always a fountain of knowledge, and I really appreciate his time and being with us on the show today. Um, he always uh, really hits it out of the park when it comes to banking and debt concepts and everything. And that's fundamental to the success of all of our clients because they're do- doctor-founded and debt-funded groups, as we like to say. Um, before I wrap up today's show, I wanted to share a little bit about a, a book that I recently finished reading. Um, it's a novel, uh, and it's called Gates of Fire by Stephen Pressfield. Um, this is the story of the um, Spartans' last stand um, at the gates of Thermopylae. And if you all ever saw the movie 300 that came out like, I don't know, 15 years ago or something like that, I didn't see it. Um, but this, uh, this book is a novel about um, uh, the Spartans, that particular battle against the Persian army, um, valor, um, democracy, uh, form uh, moving beyond city states and into a, a nation state um the the stand of a very few against a large onslaught it is probably the best book i've ever read or if not it's one of the top couple um i'm trying to get out of just reading business books ad nauseum these days and trying to to broaden some of my reading into other areas that take my mind away from business and the company and everything like that and Gates of Fire by Stephen Pressfield um, is a book that I had trouble putting down at night. It's about, it's almost 400 pages, so it's not a quick read, but man, it is a page turner. It is intense um, and just amazing. Um, I, I can't recommend it highly enough. So for those who are readers in our audience and and want to um, pick up something other than a self-help or a business book or something like that, Gates of Fire by Stephen Pressfield is one that I would uh, highly recommend. We're going to start building a reading list off of Amazon where you can go to get some of our recommendations um, and uh, hopefully have that put together before too much longer. But suffice to say, you might want to pick up a copy of uh, Gates of Fire. I highly recommend it. Well, thank you all very much for joining us again on the show. And DeWalker and I sincerely appreciate all the compliments we get on the podcast uh, and, and all the, the good feedback. And I feel like everybody I talk to on the phone um, that books a call with me references the podcast. And, and I really appreciate you all being in the audience. We do work hard at this and, and I'm, I'm encouraged to hear that it pays off on the listener end. Feel free to leave us a rating or a comment on Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Stitcher, uh, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. And if you've got a question, feel free to submit it directly to me at Perrin at PolarisHealthcarePartners.com. You never know when I might read one and answer it on an upcoming episode. Thanks so much for being a listener and a subscriber. We'll see you on the next one. Take care.